still very split on this settled matter. Four in ten Americans believe in creationism, in this idea that God created the universe and humankind in current form, usually in the last six to ten ten thousand years. About the same number believe God used evolution to generate life, and only two in ten Americans hold a naturalistic view of evolution. I get this question all of the time. Why do grown adults persist in believing in uh, creationism? Do they think that all modern biology and chemistry and archaeology and even medicine is in on some big conspiracy to hide the truth? Or do they just not care? Well, let's talk about it. Rejecting Genesis as a history book is nothing new. Back in the 4th century, St. Augustine admonished readers to avoid pontificating on matters better studied outside of theology, attempting to twist observations on heavenly bodies or animal life to fit the scriptures would ruin the faith, and this patriarch of the faith felt that it would bring shame on Christianity. But if he wanted to avoid the situation of non-believers hearing Christians talking nonsense, as he put it, uh, about the sciences, then he certainly failed. Now, like four in ten Americans, I grew up assuming humankind began within the last 10,000 years in current form. My seventh grade history book actually told me this. It began with the book of Genesis, a history book, began with the book of Genesis and blended seamlessly into Sumerian and Babylonian history. In the textbook, I learned of how tribes were dispersed across the earth after the Tower of Babel, where languages were confused. And this textbook read, quote, We need guidance because the dispersion of mankind, the scattering over the earth, complicates the study of world history. So many people in so many places cannot all be studied at the same time. By focusing on God's plan, we see how history leads to Jesus Christ. God first chose a special nation out of which Christ would come, end of quote. One of the sites to which the people dispersed, according to this textbook, er, was the Sumerian city from which Abraham emigrated. At the bottom of the page, there was a timeline stretching from 2300 to 1700 BCE, denoting the origin of Sumerian and Egyptian civilizations, Abraham's departure from Ur, Hammurabi's Babylon, the chronology was drawn from James Usher, who calculated the world's beginning at uh, October 23rd, 2000, or 4004 BCE. I, in this class, in, from this textbook, I would learn that Hebrew slaves built the pyramids uh, nearly a millennia after the archaeological record suggests the complex at Giza was built. And I didn't learn that Sumerian cuneiform actually predated the time frame of the biblical flood, and that flood went strangely unnoticed by cultures with otherwise pretty good record-keeping abilities. But I did learn the global floods were mentioned in other ancient texts, as if to lend some legitimacy. I distinctly recall feeling enthralled as a child at the immersive conjunction of material I studied in, in church at Sunday school on one hand with world history class in school at the end. It lent a sense of reality to the fantasy as if the Genesis chronology should be read literally as any other history. Now, the school that I was studying this at was a private Christian institution. And together, Abeka Books, from which I draw this uh, excerpt above, uh, and Bob Jones University Press, they print the lion's share of textbooks used in Protestant private high schools and homeschools. Now, if I'd used a Bob Jones University Press material in 7th grade, uh, I have learned that, quote, Bible-believing Christians cannot accept any evolutionary interpretation. 
dinosaurs and humans were definitely on the earth at the same time and may have even lived side by side within the past few thousand years, end of quote. On the topic of dragons, I would have learned that scientists believe a, quote, fire-breathing animal really existed, end of quote. And in 11th grade, I'd have learned that abortion makes babies into property, just like the Dred Scott decision made slaves into property. And I'd learn, uh, quote, a few slaveholders were undeniably cruel, but the majority of slaveholders treated their slaves well, end of quote. Now, while the overlap isn't 100%, of course, remember that 4 in 10 Americans are um, creationist, while only 4 in 10 Americans believe the Civil War was about slavery, right? And part of my suggestion is there's quite a bit of overlap in the reasons these ideas spark across constituencies. In a convoluted but strangely coherent way, the history of biblical literalism, even the rejection of evolution, has much to do with racism. These examples are not the reason for creationism, so much as creationism and the private school using these materials are the result of anti-black racism. Now again, I'm drawing from my experiences at a private Christian school, but I wouldn't have been too immune to that kind of indoctrination had I attended public school. Nearly a sixth of public high school biology teachers endorse or lend credibility to creationism or intelligent design. As a project director for the National Center of Science Education, Stephanie Keep recently warned of the problem scope, saying, quote, there are about 3 million students taking high school biology in this country in any given year, so we can conclude that somewhere in the neighborhood of a half million students will be presented with a favorable, a favorable view of creationism or intelligent design this year in their high school biology classes alone, end of quote. Now, in a Supreme Court case in 1987, they ruled that creationism was a religious belief, so teachers couldn't be forced by the state to teach it. And yet, many today get away with teaching creationism all the time. So why is there an appetite for such clairvoyant misinformation? Well, let's step back a bit. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species... They say that all the copies sold out in a day or so in America. It wasn't yet apparent that Christians would react negatively. Darwin discovered natural selection not long before a key development in biblical studies. Those of you who aren't quite as familiar with biblical studies, uh, you will, uh, should, I, should, I should mention this in this case. Those of you who are more familiar with biblical studies, this will be old news. But though the Jewish theologians had long taken discrepancies in the text as important to the whole, the mid-19th century Christian scholar sought to reconcile discrepancies through modern investigatory techniques. So there are lots of contradictions in the Bible. Why do those contradictions happen? What do they suggest about the Bible's construction? How could Moses have written the Torah if he died before its final scene? What might new archaeological sciences declare of the famous battles recounted in the Hebrew Bible? Did those battles happen at all? Were they anything remotely like what they are depicted as? Were they fought with as many troops as the Bible suggests, etc.? So in the German Academy, Julius Wellhausen discovered the documentary hypothesis. To He was trying to demonstrate how distinct voices or agendas were shaping the Torah during its various phases of redaction. So his documentary hypothesis proposed a solution to the problem of why, for instance, there are 
two creation stories at the beginning of Genesis, right? It's very easy to read Genesis 1 and 2 as part of one continuous story, but if you add up the various events, they happen in completely different orders. They are two distinct stories. Um, it, it, this documentary hypothesis, for example, would explain why Noah brought uh, a pair of each bird and animal on the ground up, uh, upon, into the ark in Genesis 6, but then in chapter 7 of Genesis, he actually brings seven pairs of every clean animal, one pair of every unclean animal, and seven pairs of each bird, right? The latter list either indicated Noah's working knowledge of temple ritual wouldn't exist, which wouldn't exist for another millennia, or it indicated the input of later redactors with a priest's agenda. So reading the plain text of scripture no longer worked, and the scholars were figuring this out, even if the public wasn't quite yet. So if the plain text of scripture no longer worked, it's no surprise that the advance of European scholarship coincided with an intense Christian pushback against theological scholarship in America. Now, Evolution is seen as something like a sort of a folk heresy in conservative, conservative Christianity today. And the way that heresies work historically is that heresies aren't challenges to orthodox standards. Instead, new orthodoxies grow within the veins of prospective heresies. The decision to call one belief orthodoxy and another heresy is always handled in retrospect, once we become aware of multiple competing views, right? Then we have to decide which one we want to say was always the correct one, and all the others were always heresies. Likewise, Darwin didn't quite change or challenge an age-old belief in young earth creationism. Instead, biblical literalism and creationism, while surely always present in some form throughout history— were products of print culture and biology and racism. Most obviously, once you think about it, biblical literalism simply couldn't exist before Gutenberg's printing press. We needed to have affordable Bibles and the ability to read those Bibles before we could have possibly uttered the phrase, but the Bible actually says blah, blah, blah. And as we'll discuss in a later episode on Against Reality, the historian Mark Knoll argued that literalism in American Christianity was actually a response to slaveholding. It was only after the white settler culture started feeling ashamed about slaveholding to some degree that they needed a way to override that shame. And what better way to, uh, than to appeal to the plain text of scripture, which plainly teaches in several places that some type of slavery is okay. And just like that, a long tradition begins where the cruelest ministers are the ones thumping their Bibles. The advent of the personal family Bible, the anti-clerical folk religion of American frontier faith, and the need to justify slavery through direct readings of scripture, these are the types of things that suggest to us that biblical literalism is rooted in anti-black racism. So at the same time, even among committed Protestants, Darwinism was not immediately a threat. I'll spare you the exact dates, but everyone I'm about to mention was writing in the latter half of the 19th century, between Darwin and the Civil War on the, on the one hand and the fundamentalist movement after the turn to the 20th century. The prominent Harvard botanist Asa Gray saw in natural selection an opportunity to reshape the theological concept of design. 
a seminary professor called George Wright uh, argued that scientists and theologians like walk by faith, and orthodoxy should be a working theory that can be informed by other fields. The Princeton theologian uh, Benjamin Warfield argued that God might work through evolution, which is still like you know a common view uh, among four in ten Americans today. Others argued that God worked through evolution for all species except for humankind, which retains its uniqueness. Now, on the other hand, the clergyman and scientist Enoch Burr found it offensive to say that our feelings, especially our spiritual feelings, were the result of natural forces. John William Dawson jumped onto the initial lack of scientific consensus and said that natural selection was a, as he put it, a mere hypothesis. This also is still a common way to attack it, right? And then moderate theologians split the difference. Some said the problem wasn't natural selection uh, per se, but the implied atheism. God working through nature was perfectly fine. So just as scientists were initially divided on natural selection, Christian perspectives split across competing agendas. It wasn't quite clear whether the Christian should accept or reject the theory. Then things started changing, and hostility was boiling over. Now, by the turn of the century, American Christianity was plagued by increasing sectarianism, which led to the movement gladly calling itself the Fundamentalists. After the ouster of several of its prominent modernist theologians, the 1910 Presbyterian General Assembly became the first to adopt a list of five key beliefs which would soon define fundamentalist wings of Protestant denominations in the second decade. The five beliefs included the inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin conception of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and the bodily resurrection of Christ, and then the the historicity, the truthfulness of the miracles of Christ, or in some other list later, it was that was the existence of miracles was exchanged for the second coming of Christ. Now, these fundamentals represented the zeitgeist of the anti-modernist Christian position. While the fundamentalists were hostile towards evolution, they attacked it specifically from the flank of biblical inerrancy rather than making creationism itself a central tenet. So it was during the burnout from the fundamentalist movement in the 1920s, once all the arguing started splitting too many congregations and getting too many people fired and creating just a bunch of arguments, it was during the sort of the 1920s burnout that evolution became this final line in the sand, where it really started becoming clear that if you were a conservative Christian, you were a creationist, at least a conservative Protestant. While fundamentalism decayed into church splits and ruined careers, another option sought to keep the dogma but include a smile. And this was the early form of evangelicalism that I'm arguing is perhaps a forefather but quite a different thing than what we see with white evangelicalism today. So it was during this period of the 1920s and 30s that the radio preacher and the first megachurches and new publishing and educational outlets and Pentecostal movements and so many other novel and often uniquely American innovations were serving up a less dogmatic alternative on the West Coast and in the Bible Belt. Now on evolution, the final line in the sand splitting fundamentalist and modernist on evolution was indeed a spectacle engineered for public consumption. 
This was, I'm of course, you know where this is going, the so-called uh, famous Scopes a Monkey trial of 1925. This all started when a Tennessee state representative named John W. Butler passed the Butler Act in March of 1925. The act prohibited the teaching of evolution in all public schools. The ACLU immediately sought to challenge the case and collaborated with a 24-year-old teacher named John Scopes, who agreed to get himself arrested for assigning students a chapter on evolution from the book A Civic Biology. And this book was the required text. That's an interesting fluke that most people don't talk about much, but like teachers throughout the state, Scopes was effectively required to teach from a textbook, which itself taught forbidden material, according to the Butler Act, in retrospect. So Scopes actually wanted to get arrested again. Scopes even uh, encouraged, uh, encouraged testimony against himself from his students. In search of a prosecutor, a colleague of John Butler reached out to none other than William Jennings Bryan. Bryan was a populist, a folksy Christian congressman with a habit of failing presidential campaigns. But he was also, as literally everything ever written about him will repeat ad nauseum, a gifted orator, whosoever literally taps the impulses of the common man and of folk religion and of folk politics. Bryan led the prosecution of Scopes, and Scopes was defended by Clarence Darrow. The trial transcript shows Bryan's efforts to make a grand mockery of Darwin. How could anyone claim that we were descendants of monkeys? Not even from American monkeys, but from old world monkeys, as if that matters. He cries out things like this to laughter in the courtroom, positioning himself constantly. Now, uh, you know, in one other case, he says, quote, Now here we have our glorious pedigree, and each child is expected to copy the family tree and take it home to his family to sub be submitted for the family uh, tree in the Bible. This is what Darwin says, you know, making a mockery saying that you're going to have to record your genealogy going back to monkeys in your family Bible. So this clown carries on like this until two days later, Darrow, the defense attorney, actually responded in theatrical kind by calling Brian, the prosecutor, up to the stand as a student of the Bible. The trial's transcript is really bizarre at this point. Brian deflected questions of whether the days of creation were literal 24-hour periods uh, or something else, something longer. He also deflected on questions of whether the earth is 6,000 years old. Darrow asked whether childbirth is actually painful because of Eve's sin, and Brian deflected again, saying, quote, I will believe just what the Bible says. I prefer that to your language. Read the Bible, and I will answer, end of quote. Reading the intensity is, is evident in the transcript, so I'm going to read a transcript here, and this is the defense counsel Darrow questioning on the stand, the prosecutor, William Jennings Bryan. Okay, so the defense is Darrow, and the prosecuting counsel is Bryan. Here's the excerpt. First off, Darrow, I will read it to you from the Bible. And the Lord said to a serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly thou shalt go, and thus thou shalt eat all the days of the, your life. Do you think that is why the serpent is compelled to crawl on its belly? Brian, I believe that. Darrow, have you any idea how the snake went before that time? Brian, no, sir. 
Darrow. Do you know whether he walked on his tail or not? Brian. No, sir. I have no way to know. And there's laughter in the audience at this point. Darrow. Now, you refer to the cloud that was put in the heavens after the flood, the rainbow. Do you believe in that? Brian. Read it. Darrow. All right, Mr. Brian, I will read it for you. Brian. Your Honor, I think I can shorten this testimony. The only purpose Mr. Darrow has is to slur at the Bible, but I will answer his question. I will answer it all at once, and I have no objection in the world. I want the world to know that this man who does not believe in God is trying to use a court in Tennessee, Darrow. I object to that. Brian continuing to slur at it. While it will require time, I am willing to take it. Darrow, I object to your statement. I am exempting you on your full ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. After this, the court adjourns, and then on the trial's final day, Darrow told the court that he wanted a guilty verdict for his client, John Scopes. The issue wasn't whether evolution was true or not, but instead whether or not the defendant had violated the Butler Act that prohibited teaching evolution. So the jury found Scopes guilty after deliberating only nine minutes, and the judge ordered a fine. The defendant and his lawyer were pleased, for Darrow wanted to appeal the case while Scopes spoke proudly of his commitment to religious and academic freedom. If Darrow and the ACLU desired to overthrow laws prohibiting evolution in the classroom, they'd need to wait four more decades. It was not actually until the Supreme Court ruled in Epperson v. Arkansas in 1968 that bans on teaching evolution in the classroom were finally struck down. The fundamentalist or evangelical would be a creationist after the 20s. For the Southern Protestant, the Scopes trial proved what they suspected all along, though, that Northern liberals were out to get them. Two years later, in 1927, an interesting development happens that is worth pausing on for its relevance to our next case. Two years after that Scopes trial in 1927, one man decided to do something about this assault on Southern values. A man named Bob Jones founded a university to, as he put it, quote, combat all the atheistic, agnostic, pagan adulterations of the gospel through traditional Bible teaching and create the greatest interdenominational orthodox education center in the world, end of quote. And as we'll see next time, because of a bizarre connection between tax exemptions, resistance to racial integration, and abortion, it was Bob Jones University, started in the wake of the Scopes trial, that led straight to the creation of the religious right and the rise of a new white evangelicalism.